0: Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Psalm 119, 105 to 112. "Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I've sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. I'm afflicted very much. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Accept I pray the free will offerings of my mouth, and Lord, teach me your judgments. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not strayed from your precepts. Your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, to the very end. This is God's word. We've taken a few weeks to examine God's means of grace. How is it that he gets his strength and his peace to us? How is it that the things that we know are objectively true about God and the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, the forgiveness of our sins, the renewal of all things? How do we take all of these objective truths and experience them in day-to-day, meaningful, life-changing ways? And he's given us means of grace for this. The indwelling power of his spirit, being the God of all comfort. Prayer, meditation, his scriptures. So this morning we're going to look at this psalm that explicitly rejoices over the goodness of the Word of God. In fact, the whole psalm, Psalm 119,' it's the longest chapter in the Bible. Nobody's sure uh, who the author or authors were of this particular psalm. It is very thoughtful and uh, well, all scriptures is thoughtful, but it's very thoughtfully constructed in the sense that it is uh, an acrostic. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. This psalm has 22 sections. Each section has 8 verses. And each of those 22 sections starts with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So it is a very thoughtful exposition on the goodness of God's Word. There are 176 verses. And in those 176 verses, there are 171 mentions of God's Word. The significance of this is that as we look at the means of grace through learning to love the Word of God and meditate on it and read it and mull it over in our minds, it does not cause us to become sort of cerebral and academic and distanced and cold and sort of indifferent to God. It doesn't, it doesn't remove the warmth, but in fact, the depth of study and intention and meditation of God's Word and the reflecting on it, it actually creates a deep affinity in this great love And it actually informs and invigorates and refreshes the author. And you notice this in a profound way. Think of it this way. Think of people who you appreciate. Maybe an author. Maybe an athlete. A cultural thought leader who has particular writings on subjects that are of importance and value to you. When you have someone that you really appreciate and that you like, what do you do with that person? You start to study them. You're following them on social You want to know what they think about everything. You want them to weigh in on everything. You start following their videos on YouTube. You you start doing deep dives because you're really interested in them as a person. And so the the more information is provided now for you to get to know them in a more deep and intimate way, you're like, I'm all in. They could post an article, you know, I'm this way, with uh, some, some of the guys that I like. I've told you guys I'm a Formula One fan, so I've got to be a good Tafosi And so when Ferrari releases a video with Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc, I'm like, oh, I've got to watch this. I mean, I don't want to just watch a red car go around a track. I want to know who who is that guy in there. They're like, hey, here's an ice cream on Carlos Sainz's favorite, you know, here's a video on Carlos Sainz's favorite ice cream. I'm like, I've got to know this. I mean, I've got to know what he, what is it? This is what we do, naturally, with people that we have an affinity for. So, beyond that small and radically insufficient modern parable, how much more wanting to know this great God, the God who brought cosmos from chaos, the God of the Incarnation, who's not distant and firing positive vibes our way in a vague way, but who gets his hands hamstered, who wraps himself in the dirt of his own creation, who knows our suffering, is acquainted with our suffering, has walked in our suffering and our sadness, shares our tears, understands the human experience in a deep and a profound way, to know him. This is what this psalm gives us. And so we're going to just study this one section because unlike a a chain, uh, which would sort of build and And expound. This psalm is not actually constructed like a chain. It's more like a string of pearls, where each section is its own beautiful, valuable, glorious thing. And so we're going to just study this one pearl uh, this morning, and I hope that this is encouraging to you. Um, We'll look at three things firstly, illuminating guidance, secondly, soul-quieting power, and then lastly, a heritage that produces endurance. So first, this illuminating guidance. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. In the ancient world, darkness meant danger. Today, it doesn't mean that. We don't even think about darkness as dangerous now because we live in a world full of light. Um, And even if it's quote-unquote dark outside, there's so much glow from the city. Nothing's really that dark. But in the ancient world, when you couldn't see your own hand in front of your face, in a world without electricity, darkness was dangerous. And so we need the Word of God to be this lamp and light to our life, to our path. A sense of illuminating guidance uh, in our lives. The path is a metaphor for paths in the Hebrew, the metaphor for the rhythm, the walking, the way in which you go about your life. So the Word of God brings this illuminating guidance, not just merely to that subject that you're interested in, not merely that thing on Monday that you're concerned about, Though believe me, God cares about all those things. The scripture says He knows the number of hairs on our heads. So that matters to God, but that's too small, so we have to back out here. The word being a lamp and a light. It is a light on in the in the darkness on an otherwise dark path, dark way of walking, way of thinking, way of loving, way of being. The Word of God comes in and illuminates now a new way, a new rhythm, a new liturgy for the way in which we go about our life. The way, the, the way in which the things captivate our minds. The way in which our hearts are given uh, affection towards particular things. And the affinities that grow within our desires and our passions. The word of God illuminates and gives light to an otherwise dark thing. This of course is on a collision course with our culture. Because it's presupposing that life is dark. Now, this is not pessimism for those of you exploring uh, Christian faith today. Christians are not pessimists. When I say that the world is dark, I do not mean that everybody, you know, Christians believe that everybody is the worst version of themselves in that darkness. That's not what it means. It means that the world is dark in the sense that the world is wayward. Anything that is not the worship unto God, who manifests in Jesus Christ, anything that is not in worship to him, is wayward worship. Because the human heart and the human mind is made for worship. One of the theologians in the Reformation used to say that the, the heart is an idol-making factory. It's just the wayward worship. So this text presupposes that the world is dark. The way of worship of the human condition is dark. And it needs illuminating light so that we can love the right things, worship the right way, therefore live the right way. So that this this filters down into all of the, the small things in which we are very interested in. See, because we are moderns and we are westerns westerners and we are pragmatic we see the word guidance and we immediately think perfect i need some guidance in my life i got some course selection i got to figure out got some business decisions to make got some financial decisions to make i got some relationship decisions to make and we truncate it down to the guidance of these particularly important but small things and what we need to what we need to understand if we're going to understand this verse and really understand the word of God is that God is most interested in the renewal of the heart and the mind so that we are guideable the guidance of the decision you need on Monday is irrelevant if your heart loves the wrong thing oh lord give me wisdom i've got this decision to make this decision to make should i do this this or this should i stay here or go there well if you're a worshipper of money None of it matters. Because it doesn't matter whether you stay or take the other job or go there and make this decision. None of it matters. Even if, uh, for the sake of those of you, again, exploring Christian faith this morning, you're like, eh, I'm grappling with who Jesus is and who God is. Let me just for a moment invite you into the significance of loving the right thing as it pertains to this. If there is no God, and we just evolved from nothing for no reason... And one day the sun goes supernova, like all stars do. And there's no trace of any human existence in the universe ever. One option, of course, is just become a nihilist, and then that would be terrible for society. But then the other option is to become a positive nihilist and be like, well, even though fundamentally I believe that in the end nothing will exist, I will live in a radical dislocation of that and be a loving and kind person in the city anyways. Well, that's good for the city, and, and it's good for our neighbors that we sort of decide to be kind and loving people despite that. But it is a radical dislocation from the reality that we believe is true. Whereas in the Christian faith, because we believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, which ultimately means we will have a, bo- a, a resurrection bodily, and this earth will be restored, and the resurrection—sorry, uh, the restoration of planet earth and the resurrection of our bodies is what the Bible calls heaven, when the realm of God and the realm of earth kiss again like they did in Genesis, spoiler alert, that's Revelation. So when that happens, between now and then, the children of God are to live in a particular way, with a particular liturgy, with particular affections and loves, To reflect the love of God in the earth and in so much as the still lake reflects you know, the beauty of the sky. And so that is the guidance that this is talking about, the, illuminating, of the illumination, uh, illuminating power of the Word of God that begins to reform what we love, so that we love what He loves, so that we are guidable. So you see that if at, the, if at the core of who you are, you love what He loves, then when the decision gets made as to how ought I to respond in this relationship, to this conflict, to this business decision my course selection for next year, I can make all of those decisions with tremendous liberation. Because I know that the will of God is not something that I have to decipher. The will of God is something that you, my friend, are standing in. Because you are His. And so then you, because you are guidable, because the scriptures declare that when we are people of worship, then we can be people of true wisdom. But in your life, as you're making those decisions for Monday, whatever they may be, there can be confidence and calm in your heart. Because your God is on the other side of every decision that you make. Working it out. For the good of your salvation and for His glory. And if the decision you make burns to the ground. And somebody says, you know, well, you know, if uh, God uh, closes a door, He opens a window. Sometimes. But I've read the Bible, friends. And sometimes when God closes the door, he also lets the whole house crash down. He's not disturbed by this because he is a God of resurrection. So he has no problem letting things crash and burn to the ground so he can resurrect uh, in true life and in true wisdom and in true glory and in true freedom. So you see, my friends, the decision you need to make on Monday that God cares deeply about because he loves you. You can make those decisions with calm and not with a sense of paralysis Like with every decision that you make, you are somehow got to decode this deity who is waiting for you to push the right buttons and pull the right levers and then open the door wide to the access to this thing called the will of God. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you have been baptized into his name, you are united to Christ, you are full of the Spirit, and you are standing in the will of God. So this is about loving the right things. That is liberating truth. This guidance is about godliness. And that is why the metaphor of light and dark is given. Because the light and the dark is always the biblical picture of the ways of God and the ways of darkness. What do I mean by godliness? I don't mean godliness in a self-righteous human sense, where you sit there and you think to yourself, I'm quite godly, it's too bad I'm sitting next to these sinny sinners on either side of me, and perhaps one day, if they read enough and pray enough and grow enough, and, you know, they will one day be godly like me. I'm not talking about self-righteous ideas of godliness, the human experience outside the walls of this church When people hear the word godliness. I'm talking about the guidance of godliness. Which looks like love. Joy. Peace. Long suffering. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. The fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5.22. The result of of the Spirit, the inevitable outworking of the one walking the path that is being illuminated. Good news, spoiler alert on the end of the sermon, it's not just the Word of God that is illuminated by the Holy Spirit, my friends, you are illuminated. The indwelling power of God is in you. He's not prescribing something that is an impossible path for you and I to walk, but He's indwelled us. Yes, you and I fail. Of course we fail. We fail miserably. We come each Sunday and we confess our sin for a reason. And we come to the Lord's table as repentant sinners because we never graduate from our need from His scandalous grace. And because we marvel at His scandalous grace, our heart is like the psalmist saying your word is like a lamp to my light and uh, is like a lamp and a light to my path. As we desire to live uh, to the glory of our God of great comfort, you notice that in verse six or 106, he talks about keeping his ways, keeping the precepts. See that 's the language of love that 's not the language of a religious perfectionist. Whenever the psalms cry out like, "I keep your ways, I keep your statutes. that 's like a prayer, it 's like a song coming from the soul saying, "This is who I want to be. This is my desire." And again, it's not because they're in love with a rule book. They love a king. They love their saving God. We love our saving God. We're not in love with cold precepts. We're in love with a person. 107. You look at verse 107. He says, revive me, O Lord, according to your word. But notice where the re- why, why the reviving is coming. Notice why the guidance is desired. Notice where this desire for obedience is flowing from. Affliction. Not the life of comfort and ease and things are just, everything's flowing and going well at work and my home life is good and everything is good. And I look around and I say, well, 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 I'm so blessed. I just feel like obeying this God of blessing. Nothing's good. Afflicted. The immediate context of this affliction, if you could sort of read it, um, you know, it's kind of historically where Israel was at was people were plotting the downfall of these authors. It, it was a very personal affliction. It was the persecution for the faith. So some of you may experience that the family or in your vocation may experience that. Globally speaking, uh, many believers experience that in a palpable physical way, which we don't have here in comfortable southern Ontario. But we are persecuted in other ways. I don't want to minimize that. But notice that it's in, the, it's in this affliction that this desire for being revived and for the wise guidance of the Word comes. This determination rises out of it, of all the problems and the pains. Because again, the Word of God is the Word of God that's so cherished and loved, that has 176 verses written about it, is not like a dishwasher manual. I talked about this this Friday night at the 223 with the youth. Half the youth there are youth here from Redeemer, and then the other half don't go to church anywhere that I'm aware of. And it's a beautiful mix of these kids who sit down, and as their mouths are full of pizza, I just take a couple minutes to just see the goodness of God's love in the gospel and share with them. And I talked to them about this. I say, what do you think the Bible is? Is it like a dishwasher manual? It's like, we've got to figure this thing out and figure life out and figure me out and follow all the rules. Well, there is wise guidance and rules. There's 10 commandments, and Jesus reduced the 10 to 2 by saying, Love God with your whole being and love your neighbor with your whole being, and you've kept the law. That's Matthew 22. So there are rules in the Bible, but is the Bible like a dishwasher manual? No, it is not. It's like an epic. It is an epic. The word Bible comes from the Greek, biblia, which means library. So it's the holy library. 66 books, 40 authors, conservatively speaking, 1,500 years. The text comes together into the codex for us. And what is it? It's an epic surrounding Jesus Christ, the one who would save and bring renewal to humanity. But you see, we're reading from the Psalms, and they don't have the benefit of from Matthew to to Revelation. They've got from Genesis to Malachi. But yet they're rejoicing in the saving God. From Genesis to Malachi, the saving God, looking forward to the ultimate Savior Jesus Christ. They're looking back and celebrating the God of the Exodus, not realizing, well, pra- realizing prophetically that the God of the Exodus is foreshadowing the ultimate global exodus. And so they celebrate this. so the Bible, that they, the, the Word of God that they cherish that they love, is not, they're not merely look, reading and saying, "Oh, I love these 613 laws of the Torah." Give me more of that. Tell me more about how to not mix the fabrics in my clothing. Please. That's not what's electrified the heart. The Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, this is the creation, the Creator God, who has promised to redeem all things, who has saved uh, the slaves from certain death in Egypt, who, despite their constant failure and mis- miserable. Uh, uh, efforts to worship him and they keep failing and he keeps chasing after them in grace and they know this the authors know this and they've read of this and you get to the book of Deuteronomy which is Deuteronomos, the second reading of the law in the Greek right the second reading of the law why do they need a second reading because they didn't do the first reading and so then in the book of Deuteronomy, hey, two mountains, stand on this mountain, stand on that mountain. If you obey God, you're going to be blessed. If you disobey God, you're going to be cursed. Everybody get it? And they're all like, yes, yes. And they're like, you know, when Moses says, um, you know, choose uh, this day, life or death. I set you before you, life or death, blessing or cursing. Choose life. And they're like, we choose life. And then you read at the very end of Deuteronomy, that was Deuteronomy 30. Choose life. We choose life. Deuteronomy 31. Moses is like, no, no. And they didn't. And they know all this. This is the word that they're celebrating. What, what, what is God's response to the constant failure of his children to, be, to walk in the light of his path? Keeps moving towards them in grace. What is our response to this? To spurn that grace? To live like lawless antinomians? To be like, I'll pray if I happen to remember. I'll read the scriptures if it sort of you know, comes to me. No, no, no. My friend, my friend. As, as God's grace begins to grip our hearts, the desire grows. We desire to love his word, love his way, love his testimonies, and celebrate his goodness. Let's move on to uh, the next thing, which is in 108. He says, teach me your judgments. So you see, the hierarchy of the human experience is not our own personal subjective judgment. But it is rather saying, you know, if there was a God that created the cosmos, if I'm here, not because for no apparent reason, i be... You know, the human, all of humanity is basically sentient meat. If that's not true, and if there's a God that created all things, then surely the God that created all things has a, has a way in which for me to live my life that would lead me into flourishing. And so may His judgments bring correction to my judgments. As the goodness of His grace leads to a life of gratitude, as the truth of His forgiving grace, as the truth of the resurrection of Jesus so grips my heart, that it begins to reorient my mind, and that works its way out through my hands. So let's move on to the second thing after this illuminating grace. Secondly, the soul-quieting power. And I just really have one statement to make about this before we move to the conclusion of this teaching this morning. This soul-quieting power. Look at verses 109 and 110. My life is continually in my hand. This constant sense of vulnerability, this constant sense of Being exposed, danger, calamity around the corner. People are lying in wait for me. The the ones are bringing the affliction. Here's, Here's what is so profound about these two lines as you look at the response. You know, my life is totally in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. Again, I do not forget your word. I do not forget your wisdom. I do not forget the guidance. I do not forget who you are and who I am in relation to you. Here's what this teaches us. You know, the enemy of our soul lies in wait for us. We can have physical enemies lie in wait for us. We can have all sorts of terrible things as a result of the human experience in a broken world waiting for us. But we don't live our life waiting for that. We wait on God. He doesn't say Everybody's lying in wait for me So I'm lying in wait for them (laughs) I don't want to be surprised That is a life of anxiety And fear And sorrow And bitterness Living life on the edge Defensively Your life is in the hands of God, my friend So I have good news for you today Yes Yes There are many things in all of our lives lying in wait for us. Sorrow and tragedy and calamity and decisions that have nothing to do with you. Things that happen in the world, in the economy, in our own bodies. We have no control over it and they're lying in wait for us. What do we do? We lie in wait for him. There is soul quieting power. I do not forget your law. I have not strayed from your precepts. The world can melt, but I am grounded in you. and will trust you all continually turn to you. Last thing. Verses 111 to 112. A heritage that produces endurance. Your testimonies I've taken as a heritage. They're the rejoicing of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever and to the end. What is this heritage? It's that we're, we're adopted. We're the children of God. We're inheriting everything. Life is hard, terrible, sorrowful. But in the end, you and I are loved with a love so strong, death cannot hold us. We have a heritage, we have an inheritance. When your life catches on fire, some of you are like, what do you mean when? My life is on fire right now. Some of your life was on fire last month. Some of your life is on fire right now. And for some of us, our life is going to be on fire next month. This is the human experience. And when this happens, we need to anchor ourselves to something. And he says, my heritage, my heritage is like that anchor. And it's in his testimonies. The word testimonies is one of the eight words. There's eight words in Hebrew for the word of God. And one of them is his testimonies. And again, we can't shrink down the faithfulness of God to our 20 year, 30 year, 50 year, 70 year experience. God has been faithful for millennia. We need to reflect on the grandness of his testimonies. His faithfulness for millennia. His faithfulness from the beginning. We need to step back in the sadness of our smallness. And we've got to just step back and find like the peace, the soul-quieting power in his bigness, in his greatness, swept up into this gospel narrative. His testimonies of what he has done. Genesis, he creates all things. We break everything. Genesis 3, I'm coming for you. I'm coming. Where are you? Who told you that? What did you do? I'm coming to save you. Genesis 3. Exodus, the Exodus that foreshadows our Exodus. Leviticus, the law that nobody can keep, but Christ comes and keeps the law. Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, 2 Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, all the history that we talked about earlier of God's faithfulness despite their faithfulness. Ezra and Nehemiah, Esther, where is this God? He proves himself faithful continually. The God of salvation, one that looks like there's no salvation. Job, the God in my suffering. When the world is exploding. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the wisdom literature, the poetry. To invite you into rest. Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, the prophets. This choir in unison calling the people back from their wayward worship to the worship of the Almighty God. The testimonies of the God who will save And that's all they had. But you and I have more. We get Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the testimony of the incarnated Christ. Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st Thessalonians. All giving testimony to after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The movement through the power of His Spirit. That He is preeminent above all things. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. First and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. The pastoral letters. Hey, church, keep right in the right place. Jude and Revelation. The bookend. The renewal of all things. He will restore what we did in the beginning. He is faithful. His word is a lamp to our feet a light to our path. May our hearts and our lives be ever renewed as the Spirit lights our hearts and our minds to love his ways, to live to his glory, to enjoy him forever.